Welcome to The Radical Therapist. We are now at episode number 110, and I am Dr. Chris Hoff, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Very excited about today's episode. I'm meeting with a meeting again with Hillary Canavy. And those of you longtime listeners of Radical Therapist might remember Hillary from episode number 48, where I spoke with her and Carmen Cool around anti fat bias and weight stigma and therapy. So uh, after enjoying this podcast, I recommend you go back. If you haven't listened to number 48, go back to number 48 and listen to that one as well. Uh, lots and lots of good information. So really excited about Hillary revisiting the podcast, and she has a new book out, uh, Reclaiming Body Trust, A Path to Healing and Liberation, written with Dana Sturdivant, who's her partner in Body Trust, the Center for Body Trust, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit. But anyway, before we get there, uh, just one quick announcement. I'm going to, you know, I have a, a, an intention in 2023. I didn't know if you knew that the Radical Therapist has a Patreon page where I post videos by myself and others um, giving talks or, you know, little educational snippets for those of you that are interested in post-structuralist, collaborative, narrative therapies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that might be something that you're interested in for a very small monthly fee, cost of a cup of coffee. You can have access to that stuff. And my, my goal this year is to really kind of be really consistent about putting stuff, content up. Uh, that I think you'd find helpful on the Radical Therapist Patreon page. And we also have a bi-monthly coffee and consults group where we meet on Wednesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we have a great group, and there's room for a few, a couple more, a few more. If you'd like to participate in that, um, you're invited. Um, and we kind of talk about cases. I show real video of my work, real video. <laughs> like, you get to see it all, um, show real video of my work and that we could create some conversations and, you know, of course people bring, you know, case stuff and we have interesting conversations. So that's coffee and consults at the radical therapist, Patreon page. And there'll be a link in the show notes if you're interested in just checking that out and seeing what that's about. So that's my one quick announcement. Please check that out if you haven't already. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'd love to have you join us over there for all the good stuff that's going to be coming this year. So, all right, let's get to Hillary. Hillary Canavy is a politicized therapist, coach, and educator whose work has focused on shifting the way we interact with and care for bodies, our own and others. She supports healthcare professionals in doing system-challenging radical care work. She lives with her partner and two children, her therapy dog in training, beautiful cats, and a lot of wild waterfowl fowl, fowl, just outside of Portland, Oregon. Uh, she is also with Dana, uh, responsible for the Center for Body Trust, which offers e-courses, workshops, and retreats for people to explore body trust and community, as well as training programs for helping professionals and educators interested in adopting client-centered, trauma-informed, justice-based approaches to healing. They also have an intensive year-long training to become a body trust provider, and their work has been featured in the New York Times, Scientific American, Health, Self, Real Simple, Huffington, Huffington Post, and the TEDx stage. So you can find all about that at the centerforbodytrust.com, and I will have a link in the show notes for, there as well. 
But without further ado, let's uh, hang out with Hillary again. All right, Hillary, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It's a treat to be here again. Yeah, it's good to favorites. see you again. And uh, and you have a new book out, Reclaiming Body Trust, A Path to Healing and Liberation, written with Dana Sturdivant. Did I say that right? Yeah, Sturdivant. Uh -huh. Okay, perfect. Um, and so I'm excited to have you here and talking about this new book. And I guess it's probably best to start by asking what exactly is body trust yeah it's one of those questions where dana and i look at each other and be like ah, i wish we had one of those to really succinct elevator speeches um but it turns out like most great concepts they don't necessarily fit into um, something succinct but um <clears throat> body trust is a framework that dana and i have developed over the past 17 years of working together and working together for Dana and I has meant sitting in rooms, mostly in circles of people who were um, wanting a radically different way of um, relating to their bodies and being in their bodies um, after, you know, living with uh, the impacts of anti-fat bias and all the things we do to mitigate that, like chronic dieting, disordered eating and eating disorders, those kinds of things. Um, <clears throat> and, Body trust has come to be something that we describe as a radically different way of relating to occupying and caring for your body in a culture that doesn't trust bodies. Like that's probably the most succinct. Um, we this is this framework is an invitation towards healing instead of fixing the body, and a lot of what we encounter around our bodies is more oriented towards fixing them. Um, it's a process of divestment from these constructs and industries that have taught us and told us ways to take care of our bodies that have actually created harm for us um, or resulted in harm. And it's, a re it's also an invitation into an analysis of what's come between us, you, and being at home in your body. So we think of it as a homecoming a way back towards yourself uh, into a relationship with yourself, your body you want to be in for a lifetime, regardless of what comes your way. Wonderful. And uh, you did talk about that analysis. And I guess I, I, you know, my next question is really, what are those forces at play that are, that separate us from trusting our bodies? I think when folks think about that, you know, the inclination has been to blame themselves like if I only had, if I was better at, if I did this more. And in truth, what we see is the thing that's come between us and being home in our bodies is ideas, um, it's body hierarchies, right? Mm -hmm. um, racism, anti-fat bias, um, ableism, ageism, um, and uh, dominant culture in general, who has made the body into <clears throat> something that can be commodified, marketed, sold into better versions of itself. Um, I think that trauma is one of the things that most often separates people from their bodies. And I don't think that given the trauma industry's ideas about optimizing health, I don't think the invitation back into the body is distinct enough from um, constructs of diet culture and things like that mm. yet. Um, and so there is also the re-traumatizing of, of um, 
of folks when they do want to be in relationship with their body, but live in a fat body, for instance, and um, are never going to be thin. So, you know, there's a lot of things in the culture that inherently say, if your body is not um, optimized or mainstream or aesthetically what we value, then living in your body is going to be much harder. Living peacefully in your body is going to be much harder. Um, you write that the act of reclaiming body trust is both personal and political. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah. I mean, our bodies are political sites, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we walk down the street, there's so much imprinted onto us and how we've been socialized to behave and occupy space and power in the culture that, um, our bodies are always political. There's never a moment (laughs) when they're not. Um, and reclaiming our bodies and the ownership of our bodies and our identities is inherently political because there's a huge amount of forces that would like our bodies to, um, be a certain way or be be devalued in some kind of way. Um, so reclaiming is an act of saying I'm here as I am and that I don't need to change to be worthy of respect um, and that I don't have to participate in industries that, um, dictate health or sell health to me, um, in order to feel like I have value. Hmm. Yeah. And in that, um, theme, you, you write about healthism and the effects of healthism. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. So healthism, um, is a concept I wish we talked about more. I think it's like coming up, but it's not quite here yet. And healthism is this set of beliefs that highlights health as the responsibility of an individual person and ignores the influence of class and oppression and historical trauma and weight stigma, et cetera. Um, so it wants to dissociate privilege from health status and relies on anti-fat bias and personal responsibility, rhetoric and blame and bootstrapping to promote health. Healthism it really had a birthplace in like when neoliberal kind of agendas picked up steam. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's the place where, where as a culture and clinicians actually, where we decide, you know, how much of health do I believe is in, is really in under our control or in our con- personal control and how much of it isn't. And there's a lot <clears throat> of questioning of that, um, that that kind of needs to be done like we dana talks a lot about a study that came out that was studying um the mediterranean diet right and the mediterranean diet has one that's been touted as um healthy for everyone right it's one diet they've believe they've successfully researched um and another a, a researcher actually included or inserted socioeconomic status into that study and found that people that have the most privilege have the most wealth health did have some improvements on the Mediterranean diet. Um, but the poorest folks did not. Mm. Right. And so, um, health is, um, kind of, um, asks us to not consider bodies and lived experience as some kind of monolith that can be improved with prescription, but more, um, takes into consideration lived experience, constructs, systems, 
um, and how that actually is impacting health, which is usually far more than personal behavior. Right. And uh, yes, you brought up clinicians too. And I'm wondering, I know you do a lot of training and supervision of yeah. clinicians. I'm wondering how you unlearn that stuff. Right? Or it's health, hard health to unlearn. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a bummer, right? Like yeah. there's, you know, as a clinician, like we, you know, having some behavioral stuff to go towards around health feels like a sure thing. And it, mm. and it turns out it's not right. I mean, I think dieting is the most perfect example. And it's not something as clinicians that we're super educated about. And so we're usually relying on our own personal ideas and what our neighbor did and what our best friend did and all this stuff that's, you know, so um, not helpful, frankly. Um <laughs> And so, you know, we don't know how to talk about the harms from dieting. And a lot of clinicians don't feel like they've been adequately trained in disordered eating and eating disorders. And so it all becomes this thing that we're either often giving advice about or backing off of altogether. Mm -hmm. um, and neither are super helpful, right? There's, we know that dieting is never benign for people, you know, that, um, but it causes harm, as I've said, and the harm that it causes is usually um, some distrust in the body, separation from the body, and also um, disrupts our relationship with food and disrupts our um, ideas of um, what what our what overall health, like holistic health, looks like. Um, and so, we as clinicians are often not getting a chance to really understand those impacts and tend to make recommendations that um, send clients around the same loop over and over again of dieting and, and weight regain, which is usually what happens as a result of dieting. So anyway, my ideal would be that we have a more, we have more access to information about bodies and food and dieting and anti-fat bias in our field. Yeah, and you have programming and such at the yeah. Center for Body Trust, right? People can get educated. Yeah, it's interesting because we were we started out just working with um, individual folks that wanted to work on their relationship with food and body. And what actually happened was clinicians kept coming to us and asking for um, ways to learn, but also ways to do their own personal work because they were aware they hadn't been adequately trained and that they're they noticed that most typically when it came to talking about food and body, that that's what would, um, that their own stuff was coming up in the room. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing groups for clinicians specifically that has evolved into a certification training and other ways of um, inviting people to both hold their own personal process and unlearn some of this, um, this weight and health stuff that keeps us really from supporting clients in coming home to their truest self. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, you also uh, write that it's important society unlearns dangerous misconceptions about food addiction. I wonder if you could say more about that. Yeah, food addiction is a tough one. I think mm -hmm. folks are really signing on to that right now, and there's a lot of information um, that's needed to more critically look at that data. Um, we know that, you know, I think a lot of folks are saying, well, sugar lights up the same part of the brain as mm -hmm. like heroin or whatever, which is a really, really basic um, idea that's thrown on as evidence a lot. Um, and 
I think the good news and the not so great news is, you know, that all the other things that light up parts of the brain are like music and humor and a hug from a friend and all, it's all great stuff, but it kind of throws a wrench into the way that we're, um, relating sugar and addiction. Well, all of the sugar and food addiction studies to date have not really controlled for people's relationship with food prior to what entering the study. So if people have a chronic dieting history or disordered eating history, it may not show up in the data, particularly the chronic dieting history. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that people aren't, you know, lots of food addiction studies might be like, we're going to leave a bunch of cookies on a plate and we're going to see who eats them if they're told not to eat them, you know, and there's just no awareness of like, when has this person had cookies before? When have they, um, when, what do they believe about cookies? What are we uh, validating by setting up and, you know, what food beliefs? So there's this automatic assumption and buy-in all the time that, um, that, we all feel the same way about food and sugar and all these things. It's really lacking a lot of analysis. I don't subscribe to a food addiction model at all. um, And I don't recommend clinicians do. Uh, There's just not enough data to do it um, or to, to support it. Um, Clients often come in believing that they're addicted to food. If you're working with people around food in their body. And I understand why they do. Right. Like, it feels really powerless over years of trying to lose weight or years of trying to control food intake or years of trying to be good. You do feel very out of control with food. But what we don't typically understand in our field is that all of that is a result of chronic food restriction or thoughts that food should be restricted instead of um, instead of people overeating or being indulgent or some of those other kinds of um, value-driven language that we ascribe to people's eating. So um, that's something I'd really like people to know about is that, you know, is that beliefs about restricting and restraining food are some of the most harmful to our relationship with food. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And Mm -hmm. Um, you also wrote something uh, interesting. I found it interesting that around that body image work doesn't quite cut it. And I wonder if you can yeah. go into more detail about that. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my um, Achilles heels, I guess. But like, I um, really don't like the term body image work. And it's something I wish we could move away from. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But um, when we're talking about body image work in the field, there's a few things going on. One is that we're believing that people don't like their bodies and thus need to work through their thinking errors and return to liking their bodies. You know, it's a very CBT, mm-hmm. most of the work, most of the data and the workbooks and things that are about body image kind of ascribe to these ideas. People are working on their thinking errors and doing those kinds of things. I think that has some, minim- I think that has some help for some people, but what it leaves out is that, um, first of all, some people who want to do or are being asked to do body image work are fat people. And the assumption is, um, that I think most of the research and work around body image has been done with thin people. And so the mm-hmm. assumption is that they can return to liking their thin bodies and truthfully aren't going to experience the 
sheer amount of weight stigma and discrimination, anti-fat bias that the majority of people do who live in bodies that aren't thin. Um, and so we think that body image work should really be about body acceptance work um, and body diversity work and coming home to that there's a wide variety of bodies and that living in this world in a body that's not thin is very difficult. And that's a real lived experience that we aren't going to CBT ourselves out of. And that um, we don't need to feel good in our bodies to and feel good about our bodies to live well in them. And it's not always possible for people who face discrimination based on body size to like their bodies every day. That's mm -hmm. a lot to ask of someone. Um, <clears throat> so we are really wanting to turn our focus away from body image work and towards unraveling body loathing and shame and ideas of dominance and oppression that have turned bodies into a thing needing to be altered and improved and turn that on its head and move towards thinking about bodies um, as if they're all having very distinct experiences from one another right. in the culture. Yeah. You also write, I know you write about this, but I'm wondering what role does grief play in this work? In our framework, grief has such a big part of the healing process that we we actually named it twice. Um I think there's a lot of grief for people when they get to a place where they know they can't diet anymore or that disordered eating isn't an option anymore because of tolls taken on their bodies and that the idealized body that they have been working to working towards their whole life, probably working on harder than most things in their life is not going to happen and that they are going to live in a body that they've deemed unacceptable to them and that they are going to have to do that in a culture that may also deem their body unacceptable. And um, people are grieving that, but they're also grieving the time spent and the time lost devoted to dieting. They're grieving that this was allowed to happen, you know, sometimes in the way that we do with trauma work, most clients that I've worked with over the years, um, came into dieting and body change like before the age of 10 and uh, you know before they could even consent to these concepts and um and there's just a tremendous amount to grieve like what if i had had access to embodiment and trust in my body earlier in my life what if that hadn't mm -hmm. been ruptured or severed by body blame and um and weight bias you know and so Folks are sometimes grieving the loss of relationships because they have to set boundaries because people can't stop talking about dieting or health as stuff or whatever around them. There's a tremendous amount to let go of. But often I think a lot of our work is about helping people reclaim their body story, reclaim, like restory that narrative. And I think when people do that, they realize sometimes how much the story they've been telling about their lived experience has actually belonged to dominant culture and hasn't really included all that they are and all that they've experienced through their own words, through their own feelings. Um, 
And so when folks start to do that work of restoring what's happened, when they move from maybe a narrative that sounded like I'm just a really bad dieter to um, I've been, I've been kind of forced out of myself to participate in this process and do everything my physicians and my family and everything told me to do. And it, and it just pushed me further and further from myself. They're really different stories. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a lot to come home to. Right. Okay. So having said all that, how do we recl- reclaim our body? How, what are some of the ways that we rebuild trust with food, body, and self? And I know you write about this in the book and people should get the book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, maybe just a brief, like, what are some suggestions for us? Yeah, I, um, we acknowledge that a lot of people come to this work knowing they can't go back to what they've been doing before, but not really sure how to go forward and not particularly excited about it either. <laughs> and we really um, support and encourage those folks who want to kind of dive in and have a heady experience first of like listening to the podcasts and reading the books and really just kind of learning about this alternative paradigm and world first um, as a way to kind of dip their toes in and, and allow it to allow their truth to kind of come forward a little bit in resonance with some of that material. And then we really encourage folks to think about their body stories. Like how did you learn your body was a problem? How did you learn um, that fat is bad? You know, how did you learn to eat? What did you learn? What were you taught about food? What was your access to food? Um, whose pleasure was prioritized when you were growing up? Um, who had access to pleasure? Who um, was trusted and believed and who wasn't? You know, and those kind of questions sometimes bring us into a place where we want, we're more likely to want to reject diet culture, which is kind of in the next piece and allow our our story to come up like like in like with the grief stuff i was speaking about a moment ago um we want people to know that people are fat and people have always been fat and people will continue to be fat and that's a valid and beautiful body form um that deserves to be affirmed and celebrated in the world um we want folks to have access to at least witnessing fat affirmation and joy. And one of the best ways to do that right now is to curate or create a separate like Instagram feed or TikTok feed that is just people on this path or people that have bodies very similar to yours. And that can be really helpful, like profoundly helpful. Um, We want people to get a seat in this healing process like we are not a work people we want this we want you to learn this and do it kind of badly we want you to do it some of the time or not all of the time we want you to you know make it human um knowing That's that great. perfectionism is totally a construct that upholds diet culture right mm. um and you know the other piece is you have to know you're not alone and because of you know diet culture is so pervasive and the people that <clears throat> we want to be able to trust aren't always questioning it, like our doctors and our therapists and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to have people around us that can um, remind us that this path is valid and is our truth. 
Yeah, and that le- leads into my next question. That's about, you know, you do write about the importance of finding community that will support efforts in doing this work. And I'm wondering, how do you kind of create community or in narrative, we talk about circulating stories and, and, and getting communities of concern. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, we, um, we, you know, in the same around social media, like sometimes that's the first point of access for people um, is to find other people who are doing this work. Um, there's a ton of like, um, health at every size or body trust or intuitive eating or fat liberation, um, online groups. Um, I think it's really important to look around at your friend group and wonder, you know, do you have other friends that have a shared lived experience with you? If, do you have fat friends? Um, you know, and like, is anyone talking about this stuff? Because it's kind of, hard to talk about sometimes. Mm. So I think looking around and seeing if you can find some kinship in your current community and then kind of the others, maybe the more shadow side is like, when you set, can you set boundaries and see what happens? You know, if you're going to set boundaries with your family, your friends, your doctor about not inviting you into um, diet conversations or diet culture saying you're not doing that anymore you know, what happens? Does that increase the possibility of connection and information sharing and, um, and understanding? Or is that a door you can close in search of somebody more affirming? Great. Okay, a couple more questions. I always like to ask this question of guests, but uh, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what books, ideas, thinkers, films, etc. are capturing you these days? Um, I read, um, Rest is Resistance, uh, by Trisha Hersey recently. And that is just kind of like, it's just so in me and it's really reverberating in me. And it has so much to do with what we do at Body Trust work in some ways, um, that I absolutely love it and highly recommend it. Um, I'm trying to learn (laughs) from Sophie Strand, um, who, you know, speaks at this like intersection of storytelling and like spirituality and ecology that is so not my language or wheelhouse. And I just love the way she's just like bursting my brain open. So I'm really enjoying learning from her. Um, I have a new to me meditation teacher, um, Caverly Morgan, and she just put a book out and she's a non-dual teacher and I'm really finding for the first time in a while, like my spiritual self and my political self can be much closer together um, when I'm with Caverly and I've needed that. And so that's been really great. Her book is the heart of who we are, I think. Mm. Um, and, you know, I am lucky to live in a beautiful place and there's tons of like water birds and I just, as we've been talking, a coyote ran across <laughs> wow. across the way, and um, I'm just learning from watching them a lot, which you know is a sure sign I'm aging, I think. But um, I'm just, you know, watching beings live life as they're meant to live, as unapologetically as possible, is great medicine for me. Yeah. 
That's wonderful, and I, I'm, I've taken that up as well. Uh, the I live, I'm fortunate to live next to kind of a estuary that mm-hmm. is a big spot for migrating birds, and so yeah, I, I don't know. I just it's something I find a lot of value in now. Yeah, I had no, I never knew what I didn't. I didn't know how much I could learn from birds, and now we're like, oh, it's uh, whatever. Yep. yep. <laughs> and yeah. that's great. Now, my final question is: uh, I'm sure people are going to want to know more about what you're doing and the work you're doing. Yeah. How do they find you? Um, how do they get in touch with you? That kind of thing. Yeah. So we're um, Center for Body Trust dot com. We're formerly Be Nourished. We changed our name in 2022. Um, information about workshops, but also trainings and all of that are there. We use Instagram the most and social media, but you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can, you're welcome to find me at my personal account on Instagram, which is Hillary Kin, K-I-N, one L, I'm one L Hillary in a two L world. <laughs> um, but that should be enough to find us. Yeah. And I'll have links to that stuff too, in the show notes, everybody, and a link to the book as well. And Highly recommend that you pick it up and uh, and also reach out, check out the workshops and trainings. And Hillary, thanks again for making the time and coming back My to pleasure. the podcast. And it was great to speak with you again. I always learn when I get to talk with you and I really appreciate that. So thanks, Hillary. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here with you. All right. That's our show. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, always a pleasure. I always learn from Hillary and I really appreciate her spending some time with us again on the radical therapist. Uh, if you, uh, once again, just quick announce Patreon page, go check out for the link on the, um, show notes and check that out. And also if you wouldn't mind, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this at. That's how we get out in front of people. It'd be appreciated. Just go rate and review the show and, if come find us on social media, the radical therapist at uh, Instagram and on Facebook at the radical therapist, be nice to uh, connect with you on those formats. So, um, yeah, come find us and send me an email if you want. If you have any questions, if I can be helpful, the radical therapist at gmail.com, let me know what you think. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. That's all I have. So, as always, thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and this has been the Radical Therapist Podcast. Peace.